The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Father, what a gift. And we can rest all our hope in a sovereign king, a sovereign lord of the universe. That we can rest our hope in the security that only you provide and the strength that only comes from you. And grace and mercy, the power of the Holy Spirit that works in our lives. God, we give you thanks. We remember full churches for a week or two back in those days, 15 years ago. We pray, Lord, that you would do whatever it takes to bring our people back to you. Give your people, your people, the strength to bear up to whatever it is that you do. But do it, Lord, to restore a nation, bring revival, and let it begin in the church. We do pray for the families of those who are still suffering today, 15 years later, for lost loved ones. On this anniversary, we pray you give them peace. You make them aware of your presence. And if it hasn't happened yet, Lord, may this tragedy draw them to yourself. And for those struggling in this room today, Some struggling with job situations, some struggling in their relationships, some struggling with physical problems, some struggling in their marriage. Give them peace, Lord, and give them answers. We rejoice and thank you that those answers come from your word. We pray that you would speak your word today to us, that you would open your heart, our hearts, in such a way that we might be changed. And we might leave here not the same people who came in here. We promise to give you glory for that. Even now, as we sing of our great God. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be looking this morning simply at verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10. I'm going to go back and just read from verse 1. And uh, we'll, we'll read right through verse 10. Peter writes... So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, a chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. I want to simply ask you two questions by way of introduction this morning. Who are you and why are you here? Who are you and why are you here? Now, I don't mean why are you here in this room at this moment. There are probably lots of reasons for that, right? For some of you, you just wouldn't know what else to do on a Sunday morning. You're just programmed, right? You wake up and you just end up at church and you say, how did I get there? It's just what happens on Sunday mornings. Some have come intentionally because they're excited about worshiping the Lord. Some have come because they've been invited by a friend or they're new in the neighborhood and decided to stop by. Lots of reasons why you're in the building. But that's not really the question that I'm after this morning. I'm after who are you? What is your identity as a human being? Who are you? And why are you here? And I mean here, here in general. Why do you exist? For what purpose Do you exist? These two questions may seem like simple questions on one level, but on on another level, they're the most important questions for every human being to answer. At some point, the human heart has to answer for itself those questions. Who am I? How did I get here? Who, Who am I? What makes me me? What purpose is there in my life? I'm convinced that the human heart is restless until it can at least in some way settle those two questions. For many, if not most, of the people that you and I know and navigate around, they have no clue how to answer those questions. And so they ponder about different possibilities, or maybe they just put off even thinking about it for another day. They're two of the most critical questions that any human being can ever ask of themselves. Who am I? At the heart of who I am, what is my identity as a person? And then secondarily, what is my purpose? Why am I here? Does my life serve any purpose? Is there any reason for me to be here? In the big scope of human history, do I have any any real value? Now, as I look at my own life, there are a lot of different ways I could answer those questions when it comes to the issue of identity. Who am I? There are a lot of different things I could say to answer the question, who am I? On the most obvious level, I'm Greg, right? At least I think I am. It's what most people call me when they're happy with me. Um, Greg, my mom, when I was a kid, when she was unhappy, I always knew that because she called me my first name, which is Arnold. So I knew immediately when I was Arnold, that meant trouble. But normally I'm Greg. That's part of my identity. That's what differentiates me from Tim. Somebody hollers, Tim, I don't look because that's not me. Tim looks usually, right? That's part of my identity. I'm Greg. Furthermore, I'm, I'm, a, 
I'm a human being. That says something about my identity. I'm not a dog. I'm not a cat. That differentiates me identity-wise from much of the creatures that walk around this planet. A human being. That says something. Beyond that, I'm, I'm a male. I'm a human male. I'm a, I'm a man. I'm a man. God created me that way. It's who I am. That separates me. That identifies me from at least half of the human population. So now we're narrowing in right on my identity. We know some things. I'm called Greg. I'm a human being. I'm of the male uh, variety of human being. Uh, furthermore, um, I'm, I'm a citizen of the United States of America. That says something about my identity, right? I was born here, Charleston, South Carolina. Woo! That's where I was born. Get privileged to live in my hometown to serve the Lord here. But I'm an American. And let me just establish right at the outset, that means something to me. That, that means something to me. I am, I am proud to be an American. Someone should write a song by that title. You'll catch that in a little while. I am proud to be an American. One of the greatest honors of my life is to be able to put on the United States Navy uniform uh, and, to, and to, to, to step into those shoes as one who serves a nation. It's a great honor. It's a great privilege. When the flag goes up, I'm going to stand to attention. When the national anthem is played, I'm going to stand and give my attention, and I'm going to honor the flag of this great nation because I'm proud to be an American. I'm proud to live here. I consider it a wonderful, beautiful, marvelous, miraculous blessing that the Lord has lavished upon my life to allow me to be an American. He could have caused me to be born anywhere in this world. He could have caused me to be born in any nation, in any place, in any situation. And if I could choose, if I had to be born in 1973 and could choose any place in the world to be born, I would choose this place. The Lord chose it for me. I had no, by the way, He didn't ask me. It just happened. But I'm grateful for that. It's a, grateful, it's a great privilege. It's a nation uh, where I get to enjoy freedom. I can stand and open God's Word and, and preach it and teach it, and we can study it together. You realize most people around the world can't do that this morning? Without fear, we can do it. I have the freedom to speak. I have the freedom to worship. I live in a land of abundance. It's not a perfect nation. We have many, many things that are imperfect about our nation. Fair enough? Anybody following the election? We have political problems, right? We have economic problems. We have relational problems. We have racial issues that need to be dealt with. We have all sorts of issues that need to be dealt with as a nation, but it's still a great nation. I'm proud to be an American. That tells you something about my identity. I'm Greg. I'm a human being. I'm a male human being. I'm an American citizen. That's part of my identity. I'm a pastor. That tells you something about who I am. I, I'm, a, I'm more specifically I'm the, the pastor, the lead pastor at Grace on the Ashley Church in Charleston, South Carolina. That's part of my identity. It's part of what identifies who I am and differentiates me from you. I'm a pastor. All of those things are part of my identity. But all of, as significant as all of those things are, or any of those things individually might be, none of those are the most significant thing about who I am. None of those are the most significant thing about me as a person, as a human being. None of those things are the most significant identifying factor about my life. You see, the most important 
segment or the most important descriptive of my identity is that I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. That means that there was a time in my life as a young man where it where, where the gospel was presented to me. Somebody came along the path of my life and opened up God's Word and taught me some things about life and reality. They taught me uh, some truths that I needed to know. They, they explained to me that there was a God who created all things, including me, and that He was holy and perfect. And they explained to me, according to God's Word, that I was far from perfect. In fact, that I was a sinner separated from, God, from that very God, from that Creator, by my own choice and by my nature. And that 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 Creator, that what He owed me for that was eternal judgment, eternal hell, eternal destruction. And that there was absolutely nothing I could do to change that. There was no way I could work my way out of it. There was no way I could earn my way out of it. I could never be good enough to offset my bad. My only hope was that God would do something for me that I could never do for myself. That He would rescue me. And they told me the good news, the wonderful news, that that's exactly what he's done. That he sent his very own son to live, to be born of a virgin, to live, to die on a cross, to shed his very own perfect holy blood, pouring out his life, paying the penalty of death in my place, taking the due wages for my sin. So that I could then place my faith in Him and what He's done on my behalf. And in doing so, find that all my sin was forgiven. And that all of my sin was washed away and His perfect righteousness was credited to my account. So that when I stand before that Creator against whom I rebelled one day when this life is over, I'll stand before Him justified. And I'll stand justified, not on my account, but on Christ's account. And that I'll hear on that day, well done, good and servant. Enter into your rest. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done on my behalf. That gospel was explained to me. And as a young man, I heard that and I, I embraced it and believed it. Committed my life to Christ, asked Him to forgive my sin. And in that very moment, in that second, my identity changed. Became a Christian. Became a Christian. And that makes all the difference in the world. The people to whom Peter is writing in 1 Peter chapter 2 are, in the very same vein, Christians. Who at some point in their experience had that same moment that I had as a young man. Some of them were Jewish previously. Some of them were Jewish uh, previously religiously. Some of them were Jewish uh, uh, ethnically. Many of them were Gentiles who had come from other nations but heard the same gospel and believed the same gospel and now were Christians. And so they were a mishmash of people, both Jew and Gentile. And Peter is writing to them. And he wants to, at the very outset of this letter, make sure, make sure beyond sure that they understand who they are and what purpose God has for them in the world. Because when Peter writes to them, they are suffering severely. They are suffering in in horrendous sorts of ways. The world around them has rejected them. Their culture has rejected them. They are being harassed. They are losing the very things that people tend to value the most, their possessions, their jobs, their homes, and in some cases their lives. And so Peter has written this whole letter to people who are Christians, 
who are suffering severely, who are being rejected by their culture, who are being rejected by their world, who just simply do not fit into the world around them, and and they're suffering for it. And Peter wants to encourage them with this letter. And the whole first part of the letter is all about theological truths that they need to be reminded of. And these theological truths are intended not just to be head knowledge, but they are intended by Peter to bring a smile to the face of these people. To to bring a smile to the face of people who are hurting and sad and broken and experiencing loss and grief and pain. He wants them to he wants to lift up their chin. He wants to encourage them. And by virtue of time he intends to do the same for us, believers, Christians of another day and another time. And so Peter, in this whole first section that ends with chapter chapter 2, verse 10, really, is laying out theological truths that matter for people who are suffering by way of encouraging them. And these last two verses, 9 and 10, are aimed at the issue of identity and the issue of purpose. And the one overarching thing that's going to make the difference for them is this part of their identity that they are Christians. Beginning in verse 11, we'll look next week, Peter changes, and he begins to talk about then the implications, the practical implications of all this theology he's laid down in the first couple parts of the, of the book. He's told them a lot of truths, and he's going to turn in verse 11, and he's going to say, okay, now that you understand all these things, here's what you ought to do, and here's how you need to live. It's going to become intensely practical. But I want to say to you, this bit of theology at the end of this first section is also intensely practical, if by way of the Spirit of God you see it and understand it and embrace it because it'll make all the difference in your life like it did in theirs. Peter wants to encourage them. He wants them to know who they are and he wants to identify who they are. He wants to establish their identity and the way he goes about it is absolutely remarkable. It's fascinating the way Peter goes back um, to the Old Testament and uses all sorts of Old Testament descriptions of Israel to now identify these New Testament Christians. It's actually unbelievable. It would have been, in Peter's day, shocking. In our day, you read over and it's kind of like, yawn, I don't get it. But if you were in Peter's day, you would be shocked to read what Peter says right here. And I'll try to make that plain as we go through it. He goes back to establish their identity and he uses several different titles several different descriptions from the Old Testament that God used to describe Israel. And he now applies them to these New Testament Christians. And and in doing so, he says, essentially, all of these things that Israel was in the Old Testament, they now are part of your identity. They now mark who you are. They now define you. And when you think of how scandalous that would be in the first century... Because all of these descriptions that are going to be used were exclusively used of the ethnic people of Israel and no one else. The Israelites who were recipients of these descriptions took great pride in them and were very boastful about having these titles applied to themselves as a part of their identity. And everyone else felt like an outsider. But now Peter does something radical. He says all these things apply to all of you, Jews. Gentiles, if you know Christ. Let me look at these titles because they apply to the believers that Peter writes to and they apply to me and they apply to you. The first thing he says to them is in verse 9, you are a chosen race, 
a chosen race. Now, I mind you, he's not writing to any particular ethnicity. He's writing to a bunch of Christians who some are Jewish, some are Gentile. Some have come from different parts of Israel. Others have come from who knows where in the Gentile world. And Peter calls them all collectively a chosen race and individually members of a chosen race. If there was anything that Israelites in the Old Testament were proud of, they were proud of the fact that God had chosen them. They were proud of the fact that they uniquely belonged to God. If there was anything that they took pride in, if there was anything that caused them to puff up their chests, it was that they belonged to God, that they were God's chosen people. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and following. Moses writes this. He says, and this is actually God speaking, so I guess Moses records it. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his what his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth it was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the lord has set his love on you and that he has chosen you for you were the, the fewest of all peoples but it's because the lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers that the lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of pharaoh king of egypt Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. In one sheer act of divine, sovereign love and unmerited grace, God looked down upon humanity and he chose out of all the peoples of the world, the people of Israel, to be his unique special recipients of his grace and blessing to be in unique relationship with him he makes great pains to explain to them this is not because you deserve it you caught that right i haven't chosen you because you deserve it i haven't chosen it chosen you because you've merited anything it's not because you're the smartest it's not because you're the brightest it's not because you're the most beautiful or the strongest or the largest or any of those things he declares that his choice was based solely on what His own good pleasure. Right? His own good pleasure. It's because the Lord loves you. That's why. Why did God choose Israel? Because He chose them. That's as far as you can go with that. It's it's it. You want more than that? Are you not satisfied? That's it. That's all you got. The Lord chose Israel because the Lord chose Israel. In His divine sovereignty, He's God. He's the Creator. He can choose who He likes, and He chose Israel. And his choosing was not based on anything inherent in him. It was rooted completely in his sovereignty and his love. They didn't earn it. They didn't merit it. He was simply keeping promises that he had made long ago. You caught that? It was because he was keeping his promises made long ago. Well, what were some of those promises? If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, there was a promise. You remember Adam and Eve? Kicked out of the garden. Ate the fruit. Goodbye. Out of here. Trouble for the rest of your lives. We're all still dealing a bit with that, right? But just as they're walking out of the garden and all seems lost, what does God say? He gives Eve a promise and Adam a promise. He says, one day I'm going to make all this right. One day there's going to be a seed of Eve. There's going to be a descendant of Eve. And that descendant is going to come along and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And he's going to make right what went wrong in that garden. God promised that that was going to happen. 
And here in this Deuteronomy chapter 7, in this, in this, this passage about God's electing Israel, he says, that's part of the reason why I've chosen you, because I've made promises. And me choosing you today is a part of me keeping that promise. He made other promises. He made promise to a man named Abraham. Do you remember him? Do you remember that guy? Abraham, Elizabeth, couldn't have kids. Got pretty old. Elizabeth, pushing three digits, right? All seemed lost. Lo and behold, God grants them a child, a precious child. She gives birth. And she has a child, and it's a child of promise. But God had promised Abraham before that, long before that, he had promised him, Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants, what? As numerous as the sands on the seashore. How many sands are on the seashore? Lots. When you leave here today, go count them and let me know, okay? Folly Beach, that's all I want to know. How many are on Folly Beach? Numerous as the sands of the seashore. I'm going to make of you a great nation. That was a promise God had made. And here in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he says to Israel, I'm choosing you because I've made promises. And my choosing of you, even though you don't understand it, and even though no one else can make sense of it, you need to understand that my choosing of you is not based on any merit in you. It's based on me keeping my promises, and I'm keeping my promise. That's what God's doing. So in an act of sheer unmerited grace, he chose Israel. He's keeping his promises. And by the end of the Old Testament, it is very clear that although God had chosen Israel, Israel had rejected God. And so at the close of the Old Testament, we're left with a ton of questions. God's made all these promises, and he's chosen Israel to be the vessel through which he makes good all these promises. But at the end of the Old Testament, what's the situation? His chosen people have rejected him and run after the gods of the world around them. So you're kind of left with the cliffhanger, like one of those TV shows or movies that you get right into, and it says to be continued. And you're like, no, I want to wait. How's it going to end? And here in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says something absolutely remarkable. He says God's still keeping his promise. He's keeping his promise not through Israel, but through you. He says you are a chosen race. He, he takes that language applied to Israel in the Old Testament, and he says, that was Israel in the Old Testament, but it's you today. You are a, a chosen race. In a very unmistakable way, Peter makes clear that just as Israel had been God's chosen people, something very remarkable had taken place, and the church was now God's chosen race. What had previously been an exclusive privilege of Israel was now the marvelous privilege of all who would place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every Christian becomes a part of the chosen race, the church. All believers, Jew and Gentile. Can you imagine, can you imagine a first century Pharisee hearing that? He would literally flip out of his skin, don't you think, Pastor Frank? That someone would say to a group of people that included Gentiles, you're a chosen race. You're God's chosen people. His eyeballs would have shot out. It was scandalous to say this to the church. 
But God had done something remarkable. Due to Israel's unfaithfulness and rebellion, God had, for a time period, set Israel aside. And he has now chosen a new race, a new people, to be his unique possession, to be his unique representatives, to be his, the unique recipients of all of the blessings and mercy and grace that flows from him. And that was the church. A new race. A chosen race, but a different kind of a race. A race that's not like Israel. It's not bound by a particular ethnicity. It's not bound by any particular geography. It's not bound by any language or any tongue or any tribe or any other sort of defining factor. The only defining factor of this new chosen race is personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a new chosen race that's made up of people from every tribe and every tongue and every people on the planet. That's God's new chosen race, the church. Just a little quick aside here. There are those uh, out in the theological world, and you may run across this a bit, who would make the argument that what Peter is arguing here uh, is that the church has now permanently replaced Israel in God's overarching eternal plan. I'm going to just tell you this morning, we don't have the time to go into that in depth. We could actually do a whole series on that, and perhaps we will one day. But I don't, I don't see that that's what Peter is arguing here. I don't think Peter is arguing the church has now replaced Israel and God is no longer have any purpose for Israel. I think what Peter is arguing and what the rest of the New Testament argues is that, is that God has temporarily set the nation of Israel aside as a piece of judgment against them. Because they did not live up to their covenant promises and because they refused to act out their chosenness. And for a, for a period of time, he has set them aside and he has, he has called a church to himself, a new people, a new chosen race, who will do what Israel was meant to do. And that was to declare his praises. And as he's going to say in First Peter 2, to declare or proclaim his excellencies to all the world. I believe God still has a plan for Israel in the future is what I'm saying. I think that there are a lot of Old Testament promises that seem to me to be very clearly promises made to national Israel. And I don't see any place in the New Testament where God says that those promises either no longer apply or will now be simply applied to the church. God applies his promises to Israel. He'll fulfill them in Israel eventually. Romans chapter 11, by the way, is a good place to go look at that. Paul, I think, argues the very same thing in Romans chapter 11. And just one excerpt from that, verse 11, he says, So I ask, did they stumble? This is Israel. Did Israel stumble? Paul, being a Jew, wants to know, in order that they might fall. In other words, did they stumble so that they might fall completely and be done away with forever? And Paul says to that, by no means. Absolutely not. That's not the way it is. Rather, through their trespass or through their rebellion and their sin... What, what has happened? God's brought salvation to the Gentiles so as to make Israel what? Jealous. Jealous. He goes on in Romans chapter 11 to use the illustration of, a, of an olive plant. And Israel is the olive plant rooted and grounded in, in the Lord, in God himself. And he says that, that the church, the Christian church, is like a wild olive shoot that's been grafted into that plant. That the church, in some sense, has become a part of Israel. That the church, in a sense, has, become, has been grafted into all the promises and blessings of Israel. But he doesn't argue that the, that the old plan is dead forever. God's doing something to the church. 
But there's a day coming when I believe at the end of time, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, I believe there's going to be a mass turning of the nation of Israel to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to open their eyes. They're going to see Christ for who he is, the one they've rejected all these generations as the Lord of lords and King of kings, and they're going to place their faith in him. And there's going to be a mass, a mass turning of ethnic Israel to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're going to be saved. And all of the promises that are still unfulfilled in that nation will be fulfilled at that time and subsequent to it. That's my take on it. You may have a different take on it, and, and um, you know, the Lord bless you. It's okay. Um, but what matters to us at the moment is that he here applies this to the church, to Christians. He says, you are a chosen race. All of the blessings and promises to Israel, all, everything that came along with being chosen by God, now applies to you. It now applies to you. Just as Israel was sovereignly chosen by God, the church is sovereignly chosen by God. And Peter wants to encourage his readers. He wants them to know their true identity, who they really are. And it begins with an understanding of the fact that even though the world around you has rejected you, you need to understand something about yourself. Your identity is not defined by how the world responds to you. Your identity is defined by the fact that God has chosen you. Did you catch that? Your identity is not defined by how the world responds to you or regards you. Your identity is defined and rooted by the fact that the God of this universe has chosen you. That he's chosen you. That's remarkable, isn't it? The world might hate you, but God thinks you're precious. The world might want to kill you, but God's going to give you eternal life. The world might, might make fun of you. The world might, might take your things away. The world might, might, might harass you and give you difficulty. But take heart. Be encouraged. It's only temporary because the God of the universe thinks you're precious and He's chosen you out of all the peoples in the world to be His own. You belong to Him. Whatever garbage the world throws at you for right now, it's going to go away. But, but your walk with the Lord will be forever. One day it's going to end. It's going to end one day. Whatever trouble you face, whatever heartache you face, whatever persecution you face, it's going to go away. There's a day when it's going to end. Either it's going to end on its own or you're going to die, one or the other. But when either one of those eventualities comes to pass, one thing will remain. You'll still be God's chosen and precious people. And you'll live with Him forever. That's who you are. That is who you are. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian... What was true of Peter's hearers, readers in his day, is true of you. If you're here and you're a Christian this morning, that means you haven't had had that moment like I described in my own life at the beginning of this message where you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You heard the gospel and you embraced it. You You can know for sure. You can know for sure whatever journey brought you to that point. Whatever, whatever, whatever ingredients made up that experience in your life. If you sit here this morning as a Christian, you sit here as a Christian for one reason. Because God, the God of this universe, the God against whom you've rebelled, has chosen you and called you to himself and made you his special child. Do you understand that? Do you fully grasp what that means? That's more important than anything else that marks out your identity this morning. That's more important than where you live. It's more important than where you work. It's more important than anything about your family that identifies you. It's more important than your race. 
It's more important than your language. It's more important than where your passport says you're a citizen. Above all those things, what identifies you is you've been chosen by God. You're part of a chosen race. Special possession of God. You know, that should humble us. And it should birth within us a remarkable sort of a gratitude that says, God, I don't know why in the world, out of all the people in the world, you could have brought the gospel to and called. You brought it to me. You know, Paul writes in the New Testament about the kinds of people that that God calls through his gospel. He says, you know, he says to the Corinthian church, you know, it's it's not the strongest, it's not the most beautiful. It's not those that the world exalts as wonderful. No, God, God rejoices to call the weak. He rejoices to call the not so beautiful, the not so strong. Those that the world rejects and casts off to the side, the Lord delights to call and choose for himself. And if you look at the church of Jesus Christ, look at this church. I'm not trying to say anything negative about you. I'm actually saying something really great about you. We're not, look, this is, this, look around. Go ahead, look around. It gives you a little exercise, too. Look around. This is not the elite of the world in this room this morning. I mean, no offense. No offense. I'm right in that crowd. I'm telling you. I mean, just average. That's me. No, this is not the Nobody. Nobody's electing us president, right? Nobody's electing us for anything. Not full of millionaires. We're bright people, but we're not the smartest people. Surely they're smarter people. Not the most beautiful. Although some of us better than others. Just kidding. No. We're exactly the kind of people that, that God rejoices to call. The very kinds of people that He rejoices to pour out His grace on. People that the world rejects. People that the world casts aside. People that the world will never notice. They'll never find themselves on the cover of a magazine. Never find ourselves in some movie screen somewhere. Never find ourselves probably in some mansion somewhere. No, but we're chosen by God. And that makes all the difference in the world. And that should humble us because God owed us nothing but death and judgment and hell. And the fact that He would choose us is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Listen, I know my own sin and there's nothing about me that merits God's choosing. I don't know yours, but you know yours. I always like to say I'm the worst sinner that I know. Right? I'm the worst sinner that I know. Don't look at me like that. You're the worst sinner you know. It should humble us. And there should be a gratitude in our hearts that says, you know what, God? I don't know why you would look at me and choose me. I don't know why you would cause me to hear the gospel and believe. But I'm so grateful that you have. I'm so grateful that you have that I submit my life to you. I owe you everything. It should provide us with some security too, shouldn't it? If we understand that the reason we stand before the Lord as Christians today is first and foremost because we've been chosen by God. He's the one driving this train. Yeah, we've participated. Yeah, there's a part that we play in that process. But at the end of the day, it's God who's driving the train. And that's good news. Because if He's driving the train, I can be certain that He'll get me to the destination, right? 
I don't have to wonder if my faith is going to falter and fail. Oh, no. God gets those he chooses to the end. And Paul writes about that, doesn't he, from Philippians 1, 6. And I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you is going to what? He's going to bring it to completion. That's great news. Because if hanging on to my salvation was up to me, I'd lose it. I guarantee you I'd lose it. I can't even figure out where my keys are half the time. I could never hold on to my own faith. Oh, no. He began that good work in my life, and he'll get me to the end. A third thing that this should do for us is it should obliterate every trace of racism among believers. Let me just say this. I'm not going to belabor the point. There is no excuse ever for any shred of racism to find its heart, it's a root in the heart, life, thoughts, or mouth of a Christian. Ever. Ever. If you understand that the core of your identity is that you're a Christian, that is, you've been called by God to be a part of a chosen race, and that that race levels the playing field of every nation, of every tribe, and every tongue, and every geographical region. And God is calling for Himself a people made of people from every one of those places, and they stand before Him with equal value and equal dignity. There should never be a time when we look at ourselves and look down on somebody else simply because of where they're from or how they speak or what they look like. The great shame on the American church is that racism has had a deep root in the Christian church in America. And it's a blot on, our, on the church. And as Christians in 2016 America, we should be doing every single thing we can to communicate to the world that the kingdom of God is open to anyone and everyone, and we all stand on equal footing before Him. I have no advantage of being a white male American. None. Perhaps I could argue that that could be in some ways a disadvantage. No. The kingdom of God is made up of people from all over the place. Of all sorts of skin colors and languages and intellects. Ways of living and doing life. And the church ought to be in our country a force for racial reconciliation. We ought to be doing everything we can to communicate to our culture that the grace of God is open to anyone and everyone, whoever they are, wherever they're from, whatever they look like. And the doors of every church should be open and embracing with the same kind of love to anyone and everyone. And I, and I just want to beg you to look at yourself in this area and ask yourself, is there any shred of racism? When I look at somebody, if I see that they're a different color, does that cause me to think negative things about them? Or when I hear them open their mouth and I hear that it's a different language, does that cause me to think less or negatively of them simply because of who they are or where they're from? It's something we need to repent of if it's there. And pray that God would obliterate from our lives and from our thoughts. Are we willing to laugh at jokes about people of another race or another culture? We shouldn't. There's no place. No, no, we're a chosen race, and there's a unity in that race. That race is called Christian. It's called Christian. Let me give you one, one other. We haven't gone very far. What, what, you guys are too slow this morning. <laughs> chosen race. Do you get that? You're a chosen race. He says the second thing. You're a royal priesthood. We'll finish up with that and pick up next week. A royal priesthood. 
you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Again, Peter reaches all the way back to the Old Testament, Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, God says, you'll be my treasured possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this is Peter capturing that same language and again applying that language that was applied to Israel now to the church. Not only are you a chosen race, but you're a royal priesthood. And this is a really simple breakdown. There's two words involved, royal and priest. What is a priest? What was a priest in the Old Testament? What was the significance of priesthood? Let me give you two words, access and representation. That was what was significant about being a priest, access and representation. Priests had very unique access to God. You remember how the temple was set up in the Old Testament? You remember that? You had the temple, and it had all these courts. The the, the furthest outer court was called the court of Gentiles. If you were a Gentile, that was as far as you could go. You had no further access to the presence of God than the court of Gentiles. If you were Jewish, you could take a step further through another entryway, and you could go into an inner court, and that was called the court of women. The court of women. If you were a Gentile female, you could have access to that point. But you could go no further into the temple. If you were a a Jewish male, then you could go through a further entryway to a a yet further inner court. And that was a court that was only accessible to you if you were a Jewish male. You could only go there if you were that, and you could go there and worship. And all of this is moving closer and closer to what's at the center of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where symbolically the presence of the Lord dwelt. So as we're moving from court to court, we're getting more access and closer to the presence of the Lord. So Gentiles out here, women here, men here, and that was as far as anyone could go unless you were a priest. If you were a priest, you had unique access to go further into the next chamber, closer to the presence of the Lord. And among the priests, if you were the high priest, you had the ultimate access. One day a year, you could go into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of the Lord. But to be a priest symbolized access. They had access to the presence of the Lord that the people did not have. They had very unique access to God, to God, and they, they only they could go to those inner chambers. And to be a priest was a high privilege. You had that unique access, and, and that, was, that was envied. It was envied. And only people from the tribe of Levi could be a priest. So you couldn't sign up to be a priest. You had to be born into it. So access is one thing that goes along with priesthood. There's a second thing, representation, that goes along with it. Priests represented God to the people. They mediated His presence. They took the cares and concerns of the people before the Lord, and then they went from the Lord back to the people. And the priests mediated between the people and God. They represented God to the people. So on two fronts, we have this issue of access and representation that that are tied up with priesthood. And here Peter says to Christians, to believers, to people who, some of whom, many of whom perhaps, were not even Jewish, no doubt many of them were women. I say that not now, but in Peter's day. He says to them, you know what? You're priests. Not only are you royal priests, all of you, you're a royal priesthood. What is he saying to them? He's saying to them that access and that representation that surrounded the priesthood now applies to you. You have direct access to God. Direct access to God. 
If you're here today and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the truth, that truth is true of you just as it was true of Peter's readers. You have direct access to God. Whether you're male or female, Jewish or Gentile, if you know Christ, you have direct access to God. You say, how is this possible? How can it be? It's only possible because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 27, verse 50 and 51 And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, what happened? The curtain of the temple was torn in two. What did that curtain do? It separated the people from their God. It closed off access. And the people could not access God because their sin had separated them from him. And he's a holy God and will not tolerate in his presence unholiness. And so the people were separated. When Christ died, when He shed His blood on that cross, when He died and He yielded up His Spirit, in that very moment, access was opened for everyone who had placed their faith and trust in Him. No longer does does their sin separate them from their God because Christ has paid the full price for their sin. He has shed His blood and paid the full price. There is now no longer any separation between their people and their God. They can march right in like a priest would. And have direct access to their God. They no longer need to go through some other or mediator. Which is why it's sad. So in, in so many places this morning, people will gather in a Christian church for worship. And they'll feel like they need to go confess their sin to a priest somewhere. As though they can't confess their sins to the Lord. Oh no. Peter says, if you're a Christian, you're a priest. You have access, direct access to God. And furthermore, you represent Him. That's what priests did. They represented and mediated His presence to the world and to the nations. And Peter is here saying, as a Christian, not only do you now have access to God directly, you don't have to go through someone else, but now you have become His representative, His ambassador, through whom He's going to mediate His presence to the world. Look at yourself. Did you know this morning you're a priest? Priestess? Did you know that? You thought I was the only one around here. It was a pastor. You're a priest. In every sense of the Old Testament priest, you have access to God and you mediate His presence and you represent Him. It's not just a priest, though. It's a royal priesthood, isn't it? What does royal speak of? Kings and ruling and reigning, right? It's not just that we're priests, but we're royal priests. Priests who reign with the king. You see, when Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his blood and we place our faith in him the bible tells us something remarkable happens in galatians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5 paul writes that when we place our faith in the lord jesus christ we are adopted as his sons he is the king of the universe and we become part of his royal family when we place our faith and trust in him not only are you a priest but you're royalty did you know that you say look at my bank account i'm not sure about that right You're royalty this morning. You're a part of the king's family. If that doesn't blow your mind, listen to Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will what? They'll reign with him. They'll reign with him. Realize your royalty, that you're destined to reign with Christ. In eternity, you say, well, man, I'm, I don't even get a promotion in my job. You're telling me I'm royalty? You bet you are. Bet you are. You're part of the king's family. You're part of the inheritance of royalty. 
And one day when this, when this earth ends and everything that the earth values is decimated and brought down low, the things that God values will be brought up high. And every believer will be a part of the royal court of the king, reigning with him. Does that not blow your mind? That you're a priest and a royal one at that? imagine how that must have landed on people who were hated by everybody around them that Peter was writing to? I mean, have you ever been, have you ever been low? Have you ever been low in your life? Have you ever been low when life is just not going your way, when things around you are just going wrong? When life is coming at you from every direction and you just feel the weight of the world crushing you in and you begin to wonder, man, I, I don't know, is this life worth it? I mean, do I have any real value? Would anybody even know if I was gone? Listen, the world might not treat you well. The world might reject you. The world might look down on you. The world might not value you. It may never pat you on the back. The world may bring at you all sorts of calamity and trouble and pain and grief. The world might look at you and not think you're very special. But in the kingdom that matters, the eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God, you are a privileged priest and you are royalty. Do you, do you embrace that? Do you believe that of yourself this morning? You should. Because the Bible says that's your identity if you know Christ. A chosen race. God's special people. A royal priesthood. You know what this should do for us? It should tell us a couple of things. As I mentioned earlier, it should humble us and and birth within us a deep and abiding gratitude for the Lord. But another thing it should do, it it should reorient our loyalties. It should cause us to look at ourselves and look at the world around us and say, you know what? This world is not where it's at. I'm a citizen of another kingdom. My loyalty lies there. My loyalty lies with Christ, not with the world or the things of the world or the nations of the world or the people of the world. I belong to Him. I belong to an eternal kingdom. I hold a dual citizenship. I'm a citizen of the United States of America, but I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. And I may not be much in this kingdom, but in that kingdom I'm a royal priest and I'm the chosen special possession of the God of the universe. And I'm loyal to Him above all things. If you're here this morning and you've listened to all this and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because you've never come to that place in your life where you have recognized that you're a sinner, admitted that, confessed that sin, and ran to Jesus Christ to do for you what you could never do for yourself, to save your very soul. If you've never done that this morning, none of those titles apply to you. You're a part of a world system that is headed for destruction. And if something doesn't change in your life, you're going to stand before your Creator. One day you will stand before Him. The Bible tells us one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. One day that will be your experience. The only question is, will it be before you die where there's hope or will it be after you die when that's the last thing you ever say before you're cast into eternal darkness? That's what lies at your doorstep this morning. 
But the Bible says that if you'll confess your sin and embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, in an instant, your identity will change. You'll go from being a part of the world to being a part of the kingdom of God. A chosen and precious child of the king, royal priest. That invitation is open to all who receive it. Anyone, any tribe, any nation, any status of life. There's nothing about you that eliminates you from that possibility this morning. Won't you come to him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that it's by your blood shed on our behalf that we have any hope this morning of having an identity that matters in eternity. We live in a world that's increasingly hostile to our faith, increasingly rejecting the truth of your word. And in various quarters, persecution is ramping up. I suspect, Lord, that it will continue. Perhaps even in our lifetimes, we'll find ourselves in a, in a moment like Peter's readers were in, where the persecution is heavy and hot and the world is utterly rejecting us. But on that day and on this day, we pray that the truths of your word heard this morning would burn deeply into our hearts. When we look at ourselves in the mirror, we would understand who we're looking at. A chosen child of the king. A royal priest who has deep and abiding value. Not because we're the brightest or the smartest or the most successful, but because we belong to you. And that's all that matters. For those who have come this morning discouraged, pray, I pray, O oh Lord, you'd encourage them. For those who don't feel like they have much value, I pray that this morning they would sense how deeply deeply valuable they are to you. How loved they are by you. How wanted they are by you. How precious they are to you. And for the ones who don't know you, Lord, I pray that they would find you in this quiet moment. That by your Spirit, you would open their hearts and their eyes to see the truth and they would run to you. And find everlasting life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.